On September 26, 1983, a man named Stanislav Petrov was at work. He was a Russian, the name might have clued you into that, and his job was monitoring the Soviet's early warning system. Suddenly, several sensors went off, indicating that the United States had launched missiles toward them, which meant Petrov's job was clear. He was to alert his superiors and begin their own missile launch procedures. The next step would be a response from the Americans. Things would not be likely to de-escalate from that point. But he didn't do his job. He waited. He told the people around him it was a computer malfunction, although the computer showed no signs of malfunction and said the information was of the highest reliability. He had some clues that this not, might not be what it seemed. The system indicated that five missiles were heading their way. That didn't seem like the overwhelming onslaught he expected the Americans to send if they ever started firing. When people start a war, they don't start it with only five missiles, he told the Washington Post in an interview years later. Also, the ground-based radar, which searched for missiles rising above the horizon, did not detect an attack, although they would not have done so for several minutes after the launch. But more than that, I had a funny feeling in my gut, he told the Washington Post. I didn't want to make a mistake. I made a decision, and that was it. He knew what was about to happen was wrong, and he knew he could stop it. Because it was a false alarm. Americans would never be rash enough to start World War III by firing missiles at a nuclear power, right? <laughs> Colonel Petrov attributed his judgment to both his training and his intuition. The false alarm was apparently set off when the satellite mistook the sun's reflection off of the tops of clouds for a missile launch. The computer program that was supposed to filter out such false positives had to be rewritten. Petrov's decision to deliberately disobey his duties saved not just his country, but also the world. One action, one change, and the world was changed. And now it's 35 years later. Have y'all been watching the world? Have y'all seen what's happening out there? This is America? Apparently, this is America. There's a meme that pops up from time to time on Facebook that really speaks to me. At the top, it says how it feels waking up every morning since November 2016. And it has a picture of Captain Jean-Luc Picard from the Starship Enterprise sort of braced in his chair. If you're not a Star Trek fan, I'm sorry. Um, you should be. But at any rate, he's the captain of the Starship, and he's braced. And at the bottom, it says, damage report. We wake up, and we check our phones. How bad is it? What's been broken since I went to sleep? What new horrible thing has happened today? Which fox has been put in charge of which vulnerable hens? Are we putting children in cages? Are we ballooning the federal deficit to pay subsidies to farmers hurt by tariffs that were a mistake to begin with? Which protections are we stripping away today? Is it the air and water, or is it women's bodies? Which allies have we alienated, and which unstable lunatics are we buddying up to? What very fine white person has called the cops on a person of color just living their lives? It's infuriating, and it's exhausting. If you missed Melissa Gibson's sermon on staying angry a few weeks ago, you should go back and listen to it. In fact, if you're listening on the podcast right now, seriously, stop. Go and listen to it. Um, and while you're at it, you should listen to Claudia Harris's from July 15th, and maybe even go back to Memorial Day and listen to John Allen's. Um, those are the services that fit in with my message today, but they're really everything this summer has been worth listening to. On Memorial Day, I joked that we weren't the A-team, and newcomers should be sure to come back in the fall when Barbara's here. Um, and you should, and she is the A-team, but you know what? The B-team has done a pretty good job this summer. Yeah.
Anyway, back to the world. So many things in our world are wrong right now, broken in really fundamental ways. And here's the thing, it's up to us to fix it. We can't count on someone else, especially not here, not in Shreveport. Our values as Unitarian Universalists are progressive values, the inherent worth and dignity of all souls, justice, but also equity and compassion, a free and responsible search for truth, not things that make us feel good, the democratic process where everyone has a vote. These are our values, but they're not the values upheld by the loudest voices we hear around us in Shreveport. So if someone in our city is going to speak up and say things are wrong and they need to change, it needs to be us. The task seems daunting. There are so many things that seem so wrong. So many different things we value are under attack. Temperatures are rising in terms of the weather and in terms of our emotions, and it's hard to see how that's going to change. There's so much to do, and we're just one person, and it can seem like it's just too much. So here's where the science comes in. I'm a science teacher. I've gotten to teach a handful of you. I've gotten to teach a handful of your children. Um, and it's the best job in the world. But for me, a lot of times, things come back to science. I'm going to have to give some credit to Eric first. I was trying to decide what I was going to talk about on this service several, several weeks ago, and I said that my topic was independence, and he joked, oh, like independent variables. And I said, exactly, exactly <laughs> like independent variables. Because this, in a scientific experiment, there are lots of things, lots of variables, lots of factors. Um, and some of them you can control, and some of them you can't. But you try to change just one. The one that you can control, the one that you can change, and that's your independent variable. On the cover of your order of service is a graph. Don't worry too much about the details, especially if science isn't your thing. And if we could all pretend not to notice that the word independent, which is kind of the key to the whole thing, is misspelled, um, I'd super appreciate it. Um, remember earlier when I said that I had some skills and then others, yeah, yeah, spelling is on the list with singing, I'm afraid. What's important from this picture for now is that along the bottom is the independent variable, the thing we can change, and running up the side is what happens when we change that thing. We'll come back in just a minute to that independent variable, to what it is that we can control. But first I want to talk about the y-axis, about the results that we get. If we do something, something happens. And one of the core principles of science is reproducibility. If we do the same thing again, what should happen? The same thing. And that's true in a much broader sense as well. If we keep doing what we've always done, we'll get what we've always gotten. We have to change what we're doing. We have to change the input. We have to change the part that we can control if we want the outcome to change. Sometimes we don't know what the result's going to be when we change. Sometimes we don't get the result we were hoping for. Sometimes we don't see anything happening. Sometimes things go in the wrong direction. They might go in the wrong direction for a while and then ultimately go around in the right direction again. The world often seems like a pendulum. Things swing one way and then another. We have to keep trying, though. We have to keep changing. We have to stay engaged. So back to what we can do, what we can control. Stanislav Petrov was in the right place at the right time, but all he really controlled was whether or not he made a phone call. We can't fix everything. We can't change laws. We can't fix foreign policy. We can't change people's hearts. All we control is ourselves. 
We control our thoughts to a degree, and we control our actions. Claudia had some great words two weeks ago on what we can do internally, about focusing, about using our creativity, about connecting with our community. And when we're ready, we've got to take that out into the world. And there are things that all of us can do. First of all, we've got to vote, y'all. We've got to vote. Even in the little elections, even in the ones that aren't fancy, even in the ones that don't get as much coverage on the news, you're, the, fundamentally, all politics is local. Your city council members become your state legislatures. Your state legislators become your congress members, um, and it just builds from there. There are some really fantastic people running for office um, in this fall, and you should find out about them. Try to meet them if you can. Um, there are some exciting things happening in our city, and we can vote to help be a part of that. But I think I'm preaching to the choir on that one. I think most of us out here are the people whose, when you walk up for the tiny little election, the polling person was waiting for you, right? You see them every time. Um, you're number 35 today, but they're happy that you're here. So what else can we do? We've got a vote. We've got a voice. We need to speak for those without voices. We need to speak up even if it's scary. We have to pick up the phone and call our representatives even if we don't want to. We have to call out people we hear saying hateful things, even if it's in the guise of a joke, and even if it's in a situation that makes us feel a little scared. We can't fix everything, but we can clear the road at least a little bit. We have knowledge, and we have power, and we have strength, and we can use it to make things better. There are things we can control. We have to consider the resources we have and what we can do with those resources. Maybe we have time to make phone calls. Maybe we have money to donate to campaigns. Maybe we can run for office ourselves. None of us can do all of it, but all of us can do some of it. On April 14, 1938, a little girl named Lily was born in rural Alabama. After marrying Sergeant Major Charles Ledbetter, she had two children whom she needed to support. So in 1979, she took a job working from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. as a shift manager, an area manager at the local Goodyear plant. After being hired, Lily was asked to sign the company contract policy that barred her from discussing pay rates with her coworkers. In 1996, Lily received a top performance award, but was still completely in the dark about the fact that she was paid far less for the same work as her male peers. Two years later, in 1998, she went about her normal routine and came to work early to check her mail, and an anonymous note fell out. On the note, she saw her name written to her salary, next to her salary, and below it were the names of three male co-workers with the same title, with salaries much higher than hers. After filing with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, Lily set out to make things right. That journey would take her more than 10 years and go all the way to the Supreme Court. In her first trial, the jury ruled in her favor and awarded her back pay and the cost of compensatory and punitive damages. But Goodyear appealed the case to the Court of Appeals and won. Goodyear argued that Lily's claim was not valid under Title VII's limitation period. The fine print states that an employee has 180 days to challenge discriminatory pay. But it had been almost 20 years since the discriminatory pay began, and Lily had had no idea it was happening. The court ruled there was insufficient legal evidence that proved Goodyear had been intending to discriminate against her. By 2007, Lily's appeal made it all the way to the Supreme Court. But in a 5-4 decision authorized by Justice Alito, the court upheld the 11th Circuit decision and ruled against Lilly, citing Title VII again. One of my personal heroes, Judge Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, wrote her dissenting opinion, yes. which emphasized that it was up to Congress to correct the court's parsimonious reading of Title VII. Taking the rare step of reading her opinion from the bench, Justice Ginsburg insisted that, once again, the ball is in Congress's court. 
Less than two years later, in January of 2009, the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act became the first law signed by President Obama. It closed the loophole, the 180-day loophole. Now the clock on that time restarts with each discriminatory paycheck. Lilly Ledbetter saw something wrong, and she did something to fix it. I'm not saying we can stop World War III. I'm not even saying we can fix discrimination at the highest levels of government. What Stanislav Petrov and Lily Ledbetter did was change what they could, what they had control over, to fix what they saw in front of them. Tensions between the U.S. and the USSR still existed, still exist. Discriminatory pay still happens. But it's better than it would have been if these people hadn't acted. The moral arc of the universe bends towards justice for a minute, maybe even for eight glorious years, but then it seems to bend backwards. And as John Allen talked about in May, there are people who kick that arc backwards every chance they get. For every step forward, there will be a pushback. There are more variables we can't control than variables that we can control, and there's every chance we won't see the end of this fight. This ship we're working on, we may not sail on it. But one thing we can guarantee, if we don't change what we can control, nothing will change. We have today's data point. We know what happens when we do what we've done. What happens when we do something different? There's only one way to find out. We have to change the things in our control.